Hey guys, I'm Eric McLean. And I'm Kelly Gramlich. It's time to talk some ACC football. Let's go. Happy Wednesday, everyone, and welcome into the Gramlich and McLean podcast. We have a very exciting guest today. And look, I don't even want to give people a little insight on what just happened before we recorded this. It was a very funny moment between myself and Eric McLean. Just know that we have fun doing this and we really appreciate you guys listening. So go rate the show, review it, hit the follow button on Apple Podcasts, um, follow us on the Twitter and Instagram machines. We would really appreciate that. We just appreciate all the love and support, all the listeners, and we hope that you will enjoy this guest as much as we did, Mac. Absolutely, guys. First of all, Richmond Weaver, we've, we've shouted him out 100 shows in a row now. He is the best, y'all. If we didn't have him, Kelly, I don't know what we would do, honestly. There's just so much banter, a lot of mess-ups on my end, at least. Um, and thank oh, goodness, thank goodness Rich is here to make us sound so much better than we actually are. Yeah, and professional which that's, is very hard. That's to hard do. to do for us. Very hard to do. Mac, let's welcome the legend, Ivan Mazel, And let's tell you a little bit about him. Ivan Mazel has covered college football since his days as a student at Stanford in 1977. We've got a smart one on the show. Right out of college, he covered Clemson's 1981 national title run for the Atlanta Constitution. After that, he worked for Sports Illustrated, the Dallas Morning News, and Newsday before joining ESPN.com as their first ever full-time college football writer. While at ESPN, Maisel covered so many great teams and players and became one of the voices of the sport. In 2019, Ivan served as the editor-at-large for the ESPN College Football 150, the multi-platform project commemorating the 150th anniversary of the sport. He also served as the producer of The American Game and The Greatest, the two 11-week series about the history of the sport we love so much. In 2021, he joined On3.com as their premier college football columnist. Guys, this episode was so much fun, so much history, and honestly, an, an episode you can listen to anytime this college football season. Ivan killed it. Let's get to it. Ivan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. And we have so many things to talk about, the current world of college football, um, just what you've seen covering college football for as long as you have. But let's start <laughs> with, <laughs> I was I was trying to find a way to, yeah. to do that, Ivan. But you have- but Very artfully done, very artfully done. You've covered it for 40 years, have you not? <laughs> I mean, that's serious. Uh, I did cover my first game in, in 1981. But I didn't get on the beat, quote unquote, until '87. Okay, so, good, good, good. And good. if you include college, it was 1977. I'm afraid to say. Well, there you go. I, I yeah. love it. I mean, look at the knowledge that we are dealing with right now. And we actually have a question about '81 in just a second. But let's start with on three. What 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 are you excited about with on three? Tell the listeners what you're doing. I know you're doing a daily column, but how did that all come about? Uh, well, the first way it came about is that ESPN didn't renew my contract. So all of a sudden I had, uh, I needed something to do. Uh, thought about writing books and playing golf, but uh, I certainly don't do the latter well enough to uh, spend a lot of time on it. So uh, what appealed to me about On3, Shannon Terry is the business guy behind it. Shannon and his team started Rivals.com and sold it to Yahoo. And they started 247sports.com and sold it to CBS. 
they know how to do this. And they came to me and said, we want to do a college website the way we know how to do it with premium content. And I'm, you know, and the more we talked, the more they answered every question I had the way I wanted them to answer it. So after that, it was a, it was really an easy decision to make. How about that? That's tremendous. We're, we're excited. You're a part of the team. It's super fun to, uh, to read those columns and, and to have you back in college football, man. I, I know that. Well, that's thank you. Yeah, absolutely. But let's, let's start in your career. You just kind of teased it out there for us. We were doing a little bit of research and, and found this on a, uh, on the uh, Wikipedia of the world. So it could be wrong, but it sounds like you confirmed it. Was your first assignment covering Clemson in that uh, 81 national title run? That was my first full-time gig. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. yeah, That was, uh, that was the, uh, the definition of a blind squirrel finding an acorn. You know, I'm, I'm 21 years old and, you know, about, Midway through the season, the Atlanta Constitution, and this was before the merger, it was still just the Constitution. It wasn't the AJC. Uh, about the middle of the season, when Clemson was still undefeated, you know, the sports editor looked and we went, oh, my God, I got this 21-year-old dumbass covering Clemson. You know, you know and, and then they put one of the veteran guys on it to, to write the game stories. And I did it during the week, and I wrote sidebars on the weekend. And, uh, and But, yeah, so – I covered Clemson right up until the Orange Bowl, uh, wrote the Orange Bowl story, and then I, I left the next day and went to Sports Illustrated as a as a fact checker, which in the wow. pre-Google days, I, I was responsible for the accuracy of whatever, you know, my of the story I was assigned. So that was a great way to learn how to report. Yeah, no question. What 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 was the most like I guess, memorable piece from your perspective of that run? I mean, there were so many just crazy games and things that happened, but in, in, you know, from your vantage point, what, what was just the craziest thing? Well, there's two, two things that come to mind. One is that uh, is the North Carolina game that Clemson beat North Carolina 10 to eight in Keenan stadium. And, and it was as physical and taut and tense as a 10 to eight final score sounds. Uh, and the other was just the being introduced to that Clemson family feel uh, in a season where all they where where they reached the ultimate goal. You know, I got to see the full Clemson, you know, in all its glory. And this is this is not when Clemson was an industrial com- complex. This is when it was a you know a little bitty uh, school in a wide spot on the road. <laughs> you know, two hours north of Atlanta, you know, and, and uh, Frank Howard was still in the building and and everybody couldn't have been, you know, they, they couldn't have been nicer. Bob Bradley was the SID, had been there nearly as long as Coach Howard. And and it, it was just a real and I was I didn't you know, I grew up in Alabama. I, I got that. You know, I got that whole ethic. But just to see it and feel it, it was just a it was a magic it was a magic fall, and, and I was lucky enough to to be an eyewitness to it. Pretty incredible. That's your first assignment, and then of course you you've seen again, Ivan. I keep coming up with these sentences of you've seen so much. I've got to stop saying that. Okay, please forgive me. But you have okay <laughs> with all that you've covered with college football. And one thing that I've really enjoyed the last couple of years was the college football 150. Every time something was on, I would just get hooked, and I would stop what I was doing, and I would watch the documentaries and you were editor at large of that project. I know that there was so much that went into that. 
but can you give us maybe a few stories, an interview you did, or just something that you were able to highlight in the 150 piece that really stands out? Kelly, the, the broad scope of it, you know, the, the we spent, and John Dahl was the executive producer and, and the, you know, the guy that made all the trains run on time and, and very pretty trains that they were. But we spent three years putting those 32, 33 hours of programming together. And, you know, the TV shows were a lot of fun. And uh, just to see them, to watch how they were made and to see how they were made and, and, and to fashion the narratives, you know, help uh, the guys at Herzog, the production company we hired out in L.A. to do the American game, to watch how they help them put the storylines together. The most fun I had was the, were the podcasts that I did because it was that was the deepest dive I could get into an individual story. Uh, you know, from uh, the how Newt Rockney's funeral was broadcast internationally. It was really one of the. It was the first. You know, we all now when somebody dies, we all go to CNN and you know, and we all turn it on and we watch everything. Well, the first time that had ever happened was when. Rockney died in a plane crash in 1931. Wow. And just to tell that story uh, and, and uh, you know, Oklahoma uh, being poisoned probably by the mod, mob in Chicago to lose the opener against Northwestern in 19, in, I think it was 59, uh, you know, that 58 or 59 now, I can't remember. But, you know, to do those deep dive stories, that was a lot of fun, too. When you're when you're doing all this research and and you know just crazy stories like that, uh, you know probably don't help in this answer. But what what makes fo college football so different? What makes it so special in in a world where pro sports can dominate and and news can dominate? But it just seems like the one thing that really can bring everybody together is college football. What makes it so special? The the one of the most favorite stories I ever wrote was for the Stanford Alumni Magazine 15 years ago. The editor called me and said, you know, we like to think we have the smartest people in the world teaching on this campus. Come out of here and ask them why it's important that we beat Cal. And, you know, it speaks directly to the question you asked me. Uh, you attach to your college, either as a child because your parents went there, or because you went there at a at an age when you are becoming your own person, and the imprint, you know, the, the your your brain is a very impressionable instrument from the ages of eighteen to twenty two. You know, the friends you make in college are your friends for life. The the experiences you have in college you remember for your whole life, and and your college, you know, you you're rooting for your laundry. You're rooting for your colors and, and the passion, you know, the, the passion that is involved and the emotion that is involved in, in that interaction is what makes college football unique among the major American sports. And it's what has kept me interested in it, not only for my entire professional career, but my entire life. I love, love that you're rooting for your laundry. Right. I don't think I've ever <laughs> heard that before. That's really good. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, you know, it, it, you know, if you, it doesn't matter who's wearing it, you could put, you know, you know, dogs, cats, and gorillas in those, you know, <laughs> uniforms, and you know, you're gonna sell eighty thousand tickets if you know if Clemson can beat the 
dogs in the South Carolina uniforms. That's you know, right. Just, yeah. I love That's how that. it is. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Hey, before we kind of move on to, uh, you know, current affairs, if you will, I want to ask you one more, uh, you know, because we, we've kind of been flashing back and, and talking about all these cool projects and, and your first project and, and these great, you know, games and contests that you've been a part of and, and witnessed. But if, if you could give me number one, I know it's so hard to do. Everyone probably asks you this all the time, but the, the best game that you have ever seen or covered, what would that be? Oh my. Uh, I'm sorry. I know. Yeah. Well, it, <laughs> you could give us a few. I'd, I'd say the best game I ever covered. You know, I, I'm tempted like everybody else uh, of my generation to say the Texas USC Rose Bowl, but I, I figure was, that would be close. I, to I, I, I so choked on, I so, I felt like I so choked on the story that it's not a great memory for me. <laughs> uh, and it was like 10 years later before I could go back and read the story. And, and it wasn't as <laughs> oh, bad no. as I remembered, you know, but, uh, you know, that game, the, the kick six between you know, Auburn and Alabama, uh, the Cordell Stewart Hail Mary for Colorado against Michigan in 94. Uh, I was in the stands in the Iron Bowl. I was in the stands that didn't cover it in 1985 when uh, Van Tiffen kicked a 52-yard field goal as time expired for Alabama to beat Auburn. And I was in the stands for the play, the Cal-Stanford play in 1982. So, uh, I, I've gotten to see uh, a lot of the seminal moments of the sport over the last 40 years. Uh, and it's, uh, there hadn't been many I've missed. You know, the Rose Bowl, you bring up the Rose Bowl. I grew up in Austin. I grew up a Texas fan. So I remember that game vividly. And yes, I'll you just, do. Yeah. Yes, I do. I do. Mm -hmm. And my grandpa was there. And so uh, when Clemson first played in a national title, he called me and said, you have to go <laughs> because yes. as a Texas fan, he was saying it doesn't last forever, which, you know, maybe Clemson fans are seeing that a little bit, but I would say honorable mention. And I know it's not because when you have Texas and USC, you have these huge brands and you have the uh, California versus Texas, which was such a great uh, storyline there. And maybe this is just my bias and I'd love your thoughts on this, Ivan, but I think the 2016 Clemson Alabama game, had a lot of what the USC Texas game did and the underdog one yes. that you, you yeah. knocked off kind of the blue blood. So do you, were you at that game? Did you cover that game in person? Oh, I've been at all three Alabama Clemson okay. national championship games. You know, the 15 game was terrific. Yeah. Uh, because that onside kick no, Mac was playing in that game. <laughs> yeah. Breaks my heart. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, that, that was uh, the onside kick is, you know, one of the great plays in the history of the game. One of the great calls in the history of the game. I'll put it that way. Uh, and, and as you know, you always think of, of a guy like Nick Saban as conservative and going to go by the book. And that was such a, just such a gutsy call. Mm -hmm. uh, no, that for a national champ, for any game to go to literally the last second on the goal line is a special moment for it to be for the national championship. I understand completely what you're saying. And I, I would venture to guess that means more to Clemson fans than blowing out Alabama, you know, a, a couple of years later, you know, because uh, every national championship is special, you know, and, and that sounds uh, idiotic to say, but, and, and almost uh, uh, snobbish, you know, because you, you have more than one to, to choose from, but, uh, 
you know, that was that game was a validation of Dabo. It was a you know, it was a return to glory for Clemson and and just God, what a what a terrific football game. Yeah, it was. I always think there's some parallels there, and I'd love I'm I'm already I'm ready for the 30 for 30 on that game. So hopefully it's coming soon. Um, oh, that's okay. a good idea. Yeah, right. Get, you could, you know, maybe you could do it for round three. We'll see. Um, <laughs> let's talk about the current state of college football because I've been hearing, this was so funny. I was, so I do local radio in Clemson in the upstate of South Carolina. And I was at Dabo's press conference yesterday and they went to Zoom for questions. And we had questions from the Wall Street Journal and New York Times, which was a very fancy moment for the press conference. And both of these national writers asked Dabo Sweeney about, you know, is parity back in college football because Alabama struggled at Florida and Clemson and Ohio State have already lost? What, what do you make of that question? Uh, it, it's, a, it's a logical question. I don't see it as parity. I see it as, as normalcy. And that's what I wrote uh, in a column that posted Tuesday. Uh, you know, we're at the end of week three, everybody's got flaws. And that's the way it's supposed to be. You know, and and it hasn't. It certainly wasn't that way last year, and, and whatever that was, we call last season. You know, it, which was uh, unique in so many ways. But uh, everybody's got issues, and I, I don't know if that. I guess you can define that as parity, but uh, three weeks into the season, my experience is typically if you're really good three weeks in the season, it's very hard to sustain that over the course of 14 weeks, you know, uh, it usually means that about the eighth or ninth week you peak because all, you know, it's hard to have all those eyes on you and play at that level week after week when everybody's gunning for you. But if you've got issues and you realize you got issues, you keep working hard. Uh, you know what, uh, clearly that's, uh, Clemson's got plenty of issues. Uh, and now Alabama's discovered that, you know, they need to shore up their run defense and they need to shore up their concentration. You know, they, you, you, uh, who would have thought that Florida wouldn't have just given up and gone in after the first quarter? You know, uh, so and, and on down the line, you know, everybody in that top sphere, there's something they need to fix and, and a lot they need to get better at. And that's the way it's supposed to be. So I don't know if it's parity. It's just we're kind of a little bit back to normal. Which I'd love, man. You know, I think it's it's interesting that, you know, us us uh, younger folks call it parody because, you know, we've gotten used to just such a dominant performance from, you know, the, the Clemsons, the Bamas, the Ohio States, maybe yeah. in Oklahoma or Georgia. And it's just like, OK, that's the, that's how it is. That's our normal. And so now that it's this, oh, man, these guys are struggling a little bit. What's happening? What, what's going on? It's uh, yeah. it's interesting for us to say that that it's parody when. When you think it's normal, and I agree, I hope it becomes normal because it's just it's so much more fun when we can get the entire nation involved, uh, and, and that's why you know I think expansion talk is so intriguing, you know, because there's at least opportunity. That's what you hope for. It might end up being the same, you know, three four teams at the end of the day, but at least there's that opportunity, uh, you know, for for uh, somebody to rise up. So I, I want to move on to a little bit. Well, let of me a, just interject one thing. Yeah, back. please, please. It's so depressing to hear you say you know this is how we young people think because <laughs> i you know i constantly have to remind myself okay this year's college freshmen have not been alive 
were not alive the last time Miami won a national championship, which to me was like, you know, four or five years ago. Things move so fast in college football. And obviously when your roster turns over 25% a year, of course they move fast. But the overarching point of that is I think it should be a greater appreciation for what Dabo has done by maintaining his staff pretty well intact uh, over you know the, the length of of his tenure at Clemson and what Nick Saban has done, uh, despite constant right. turnover on his staff, uh, it's two very different ways of, of of doing what they've done to achieve the same result. But it, it's really incredible. It's it's very intriguing as well, just to see you know the the two very different styles or at least perceived styles. Um, and then of course you said the coaching staff, and then when you really dive into it. They are so much more alike than than we want to give them credit for. It's very interesting, you know, the more kind of all access type things that that Coach Saban allows at Alabama, and you really see, you know, kind of who he is. He he's not just this militant guy, but you know, that's unfortunately all that we've shown for so long. And so I, I think it is super intriguing, especially to look at those two programs on on how they've done this run. But you know, want to want to scoot forward to a, a you know you talk about depressing. This is depressing for me, and I'm sure a lot of people. Uh, <laughs> it's not depressing you, you, for you. Don't lie. You well, kind of like n- it. Now that I'm friends with Coach Rick and and EJ, I kind of you know get that affiliation depression from them. Uh, with with Florida State, you, you've covered them yeah. a lot in in your career. I'm sure you've seen the highest of highs, and now probably yep. the lowest of lows. Just what what what's your analysis on you know where they are, how they got here, and you know, are these fish issues that they can get back from this and, and maybe how long will it take? I know that was like six questions in one, but uh, it's a lot to unpack here with Florida State. Well, it is. And, and they did, you know, I think what you have to remember is they didn't get here overnight and they're not going to they're not going to leave here overnight. And that's uh, it, it's been a dysfunctional place really since. You know, if you, I'm willing to concede that if you want to say when, when, you know, 2013 was a was a great season and a national championship, but but the seeds of dysfunction were there before that, and you know the fact that you got a guy like Jimbo Fisher and the working conditions become untenable enough that he begins to not win as much and and leaves, and then. You know, it's been a bad hire after bad hire and, and or a, a hire that doesn't fit, you know, not necessarily a, a bad coach, but a, a hire that doesn't fit time after time and an AD hire that doesn't fit time after time. I mean, it's it's been uh, it's been A to Z in, in how to dismantle a championship program. And I think it a little bit speaks to the power of of coaching and of personality of Bobby Bowden. Uh, and, you know, to me, what is a blue blood program? It's a, it's a program that wins when the best coach leaves. It's a program that keeps winning when the best coach leaves. You just go hire somebody else. And it's a very short list. And, you know, Florida State, it looked like maybe when Jimbo won his national championship was there. Clearly, it was not. And, and it's they're going to have to it's going to take time and patience and money to to get back. That's what's weird about FSU is you see a lot of different programs like Nebraska. People will say, well, it's a one coach program, but Jimbo won a national title. So it's and I know he was on Bobby Bowden's staff. So you have that. But 
that's kind of the little trump card for FSU. And I read your piece on Bobby Bowden after he passed away, and I loved it. I thought the insight no, was just it was it was excellent. Um, and some of the stories that you had in there, the, the fact that Bobby Bowden, I guess I didn't know this, but that he almost became the head coach at Alabama. And you think of the trickle yeah. down and what would have happened. And then FSU joining the ACC because of Bowden's success. He's one of those guys. And I'd love more of your thoughts on, on Bowden because the effect that he's had on college football, it's just, you can't even really measure it. No, you can't. And uh, we all tried when he died. Right. Uh, and, and, I, th- I think, you know, he built that program from scratch. You know, you know we all have, you know, we all le- leapt on the stat that this is FSU is 0-3 for the first time in, since 1976. Well, you know, they hired him for 1977. So they are literally back where they were, you know, when they hired Bobby Bowden. You know, they've gone, you know, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, I guess. Uh, his... What struck me about his tenure there is is the longer he continued there, the more it was sort of the the way things used to be. You know, it, it, and I'm not not to say he didn't keep up with the game on the field. He certainly did. He he was very good at adapting his style of play to what needed to be done over the course of his long tenure there. But the way that he dealt with us the way that he dealt with his players right until maybe the last three or four years of his tenure there, his locker room was open to the media. And, you know, yeah, that's, you can say that's obviously that's one thing we look at, but it was the reason he did it that I always found interesting. You know, his viewpoint was these guys are going to want to go to the NFL. They need to learn how to handle the media. And in, in, in the NFL, the locker room is open. So I'm going to have my locker room open and they're going to have to learn how to do this. And coaches that are being protective, quote unquote, of their players are just being protective of themselves, really. And that's not really any shocking news. And I don't know how we went from Bobby Bowden to me complaining <laughs> about media coverage, but uh, you know, Again, it's like, it's his how impact. does this affect me? Right. Yeah. No, <laughs> uh, but and I'll steer it back to Bobby. You know, he was a wonderful man. Uh, obviously, deeply uh, devout in a sport where it's very easy to lose sight of your bearings mm. and, and and leap after that magical prize and not care how you get there. And uh, Bobby cared how he did it. He cared about, you know, he always called them his boys. You know, and there was a time when you weren't supposed to say that about your players, but he said it and nobody cared because everybody knew where his heart was. And uh, it, it was just a, it was a, it was a wonderful man. He really was. And a hell of a coach. He was. And okay. So speaking of leaping for the magical prize and not caring how you get there, that brings me to Texas and um, Oklahoma <laughs> and Back then leaving the Big 12. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so mm-hmm. when I saw this, like I said, I grew up a Texas fan. I yeah. I hate this. I hate this. And I, I get it because Texas, more than anyone, looks at college football as a business first. And I get that they were carrying water for the Big 12. When I saw the numbers, the TV ratings, and saw people dive into that, it was pretty shocking what Texas yep. and OU are doing for the Big 12. But I also feel for the TCUs and the Texas Techs and, and you know, what's going to happen to those schools. But what was your reaction 
when you saw that rumor and then it became a reality. And I mean, how do you think that's going to affect college football down the line? Well, I think there's two ways it could go. My reaction was, well, of course. Uh, And then when I heard how it went down, I thought, well, of course, which was that Texas you know, went and called OU and said, hey, let's go do this. And they called Greg Sankey and said, we like how you're doing your deal. We want to come be a part of it. What is he supposed to say? Oh, no, that really, no thanks. You know, that wouldn't be right for the Big 12. You know, of course he's not going to say that. So uh, it can go two ways. You know, it could be the Nebraska model where you, you trade your athletic competitive soul for financial security you know, which is basically what Nebraska did. They're now in a league where, you know, they're they're not in whatever natural recruiting base they had. They're in a league that doesn't care about them. They have no natural rivalries, geography notwithstanding, no traditional rivalries. And, uh, it, you know, it's going to take them a long time to get back to where they're used to being. Uh, on the other hand, they're financially stable. Is that a trade Anybody wants to make, you know, I don't know. You know, my job is not to be the Nebraska AD, you know, uh, and the Nebraska president. Texas is trading its primacy as the, you know, the first among equals in the Big 12 to be one of 16. And we're all really curious to see how Texas likes living as one of 16. Because they're not going to be able to do you know, what they are used to doing in that league. And, you know, are they, are they going to be able to live with that? A. B, competitively, they're in much deeper water than they've been for a while, and they haven't done a great job in the water they're in. You know, so uh, that's interesting. If you think about it, and I keep coming back to this, uh, Texas has had two successful coaches since the end of World War II. And they had the same personality, Daryl Royal and Mac Brown, you know, and, uh, you know, back slapping and, and rather than preside over all the infighting among the alums and, and, and the athletic department, they said, hey, come, go, let's all do it together. I don't know if Sark's that kind of guy, you know, he might be, you know, and, you know, we'll, we'll see. But the, Texas has bitten off a lot here again. Or financial security, and uh, I think OU will be fine. You didn't ask me about OU, but I think they'll be fine because they seem to win no matter what they do. And, yeah. And you know, uh, and again, how do you define that? I don't know, but uh, I think Texas could very easily, you know, it, it could it could be great, but it also could be Nebraska, and, and we'll just have to. I guess the big difference it's not going to be Nebraska because. Texas is the flagship state in a in a in a state the flagship school in a state with a lot of good players. I'll I'll take a breath here because yeah, I no, no, no. More, I, I have four I think it's more great. thoughts I could go to. I yeah. love it, but you bring up yeah. Oklahoma, and I've t- yeah. said this to Mac. I don't blame the SEC for this. To your point, because anyone would have accepted that. I blame Texas of course. for yeah. their greed that has been a common theme forever and ever. And who I'm really disappointed in is Oklahoma because I kind of thought Oklahoma was better than this. And I don't think they wanted to, but I think Texas said, all right, like, you got to come with us. Come on, little brother, even though OU is the big brother, but little brother, yeah. big brother on the field, little brother off maybe. And I'm a little disappointed in Oklahoma, but like you said, I think OU is going to be fine. 
But Texas, the Arkansas game was very telling. <laughs> so we'll see what happens. Yeah, I think welcome, the Nebraska comparison is Welcome to the league. Welcome to the league. So I'll tell you a story about the Arkansas game. Uh, my, my brother has a, a business associate who lives in Houston and went to Fayetteville for the game. And he mm-hmm. texted my brother from Fayetteville. And he said, I forgot how much these people bleep and hate us. Yep. Yep. Which that rivalry. Perfect. It's perfect. That's it. You know, and, and that, <laughs> that's what uh, Texas is, is in store. You know, that's what's in store for Texas, you know, <laughs> there in college station. Can you imagine? Everywhere. Yeah. Everywhere. And it, it's interesting, you know, AM going into the SEC, they opened the door to go east, but when they opened the door, everybody to the east of them came into Texas to recruit. Yep. And, you know, I, I added it up after Rockermeyer uh, signing by Alabama, the, you know, the big offensive lineman that was a top recruit in Texas and his dad played at Texas. Nick Saban has signed 23 players out of the state of Texas uh, since A&M got in the league. Wow. You know, so you multiply that times LSU, times Ole Miss, you know, et cetera, et cetera, Arkansas. It, it's it's going to be different for Texas. And uh, if it's not already different for Texas, and, you know, now the door is going to be open a little wider. They're widening the road. So uh, that part's going to be interesting, too. I, I really can't wait to see it. You know, it'll be interesting to see, does it happen earlier than that contract uh, allegedly allows? I think it will. Um, and then just a, a quick follow-up. I mean, do you think this will be the catalyst uh, for a Super League, for something of that nature? We've already seen the Big 12 say, okay, hey, friends, come join us uh, and, and do this and that. But do you think it, it becomes that because of this move, maybe five, ten years? Maybe that's too long. Maybe it's sooner than that. Well, I think we'll know a lot more with the next round of television negotiations, you know, over the uh, between now and when Texas and Oklahoma are con- – Contractually able to leave. I mean, they can leave if they want to pay the you know the billions of dollars. They can leave earlier. But I think over the next four years, when the Big Ten does its deal and the Pac-12 does its deal uh, and the, whatever the Big 12 is now does its deal, we'll we'll get a sense of of what the future holds. The the Super League idea, in some ways, we're kind of there now. You know, we, we're kind of down to a uh, a power four, if you will, uh, which is a column I'm writing. But uh, you're hemmed in a little bit in how you do it. By you know, the Pac-12 said they're not going to expand anymore because of time zone. You know, when the time zone issues is one of the bigger deals. You know, so you know uh, it's so much different than a professional league where you only have to worry about your one sport. You know. You know, if the Pac-12 expanded into the central time zone, then all of a sudden you got to get your volleyball teams, you know, across two time zones and, and the kids have to go to class and, and you know, and, and extrapolate that on out to every sport. So there may be some sort of, you know, the alliance is supposed to – well, nobody knows what the alliance is supposed to be, including the commissioners of the three leagues in the alliance. But, uh, you know – we'll inch closer to something like a super league. I just don't think we'll have anything exactly like that for a long time. Yeah. It, it'll be, it'll be very interesting to see this ever evolving game and sport and, and all those reasons that you just mentioned. All right. We're super grateful for your time. Uh, we want to finish with 
just a quick rapid fire. And, and again, you, you've done some really cool things in your career. So Kelly and I are very interested in these. So just first thing that comes to mind, just throw it out there. And we're going to go through about six or seven of these really quick. So to okay. start off, favorite stadium to cover a game in? Any stadium with more than 90,000 people that are all standing 30 <laughs> seconds before the kickoff thinking their team is going to win. That, that, that's the magic moment right there. That is. Okay. Um, this, can be, this can be, you know, from the past, current, whatever. Favorite coach to interview? Probably Bobby Bowden. But I, I will tell you the first, the first football coach I ever interviewed was Bill Walsh who was the Stanford coach my freshman year. One. And I was, I was 17 years and he was not Bill Walsh yet. He was just, just some NFL assistant. And, and I was scared to death because I was 17 years old, and, you know, didn't know what I was doing. So, uh, but uh, so I always had a soft spot for Walsh, but Bowden was my favorite just because he was such a, such a great person. No doubt. Favorite player that you interviewed or interview currently. Well, I will tell you this story. I did a, when I was at Sports Illustrated in the mid '80s as a fact checker. I got to write some, and 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 in 1986, Tennessee started off, I think, 0 and five, something like that. They were horrible, and I went down and did a story on how bad they were. And they had a safety who I really I interviewed with, and uh, who I interviewed, and we just hit it off. He was a great guy. And we sort of kept track of each other all through the years. And it's Charles Davis on Fox Sports. Wow. So that that's the one that was like the, the interview I had with a kid that I was like, you know, a kid. I was a kid, you know, so we both sort of have grown up through the business together. That, that's kind of cool. And he was in he was in the 150 series a lot, right? He was in the 150 yeah. series. He's a lot. Great. And that, I may have had something to do with, with I that. Figured. Yeah. I figured. Yeah. Um, yeah. OK. Over the over the span of your career, this is a tough one. Favorite player to watch play? Reggie Bush. It, it oh. is not it was not that's it was not as hard as as you would think it was. But uh, the, the single best play I ever saw. They played a game against Fresno State in 05 that kicked off at ten thirty Eastern time. It was a night game at the Coliseum, and you can look you can go to YouTube and find this punt return where he. He must have run 300 yards <laughs> you know, and, and from sideline to sideline and back again and and scored and and people were laughing. It was just, you know, it was it was incredible. He was he was a terrific player. I, I'm gonna interrupt our rapid fire really quick because I, I have kind of this theory on players like like Bush and Liner just were transcendent. I mean, they they yes. were so just different. Do you think that the the access number one that we have to players and and seeing everything and social media has kind of kind of ruined that a little bit? Because I feel like it was hard to see those guys. You know, you had to be very intentional whether you were there or you you had you know whatever TV they were playing on. You couldn't just you know look at your phone or look at the highlights on social media. Do you think that has kind of I don't know made things more normal for us now? It's interesting because it gets into what we were talking about before the you know the mythology of the sport, uh, you know, all the all the thing the magical things you read about the four horsemen and and Doak Walker and you know Herschel Walker, whatever name you want. So much of those plays people saw and played over in their heads because that right. was all they had, and uh, that's a very it, you know it speaks to the way we live now. You know where you, you know. 
Norm McDonald's died last week and, and we've all been watching Norm McDonald for the last week and thinking, wow, he was terrific. And, and it's a luxury we have, but it also may, you know, maybe it does take a little bit of the magic away. Yeah. All right. Back to, back to rapid fire. Sorry about that folks. That's um, a good biggest, question. Yeah. Biggest Heisman snub. Oh, that's a really good question. I, you know, I have voted since 1987 and I've only voted for about half of the winners. <laughs> Uh, I would say to me, uh, either, and it may be my Stanford slip is showing here, but either, you know, Christian McCaffrey, Mm. uh, over Derek Henry uh, and, or Toby Gerhardt over Mark Ingram, Mm. you know, and I grew up in an, my parents went to an Alabama house. I know all about Alabama, but, uh, Gerhardt and Ingram in particular, Ingram won that because Alabama had never won a Heisman and everybody fell in love with that. You know, w- with that storyline, if you had given, I always looked at it this way: if you had given Ingram's numbers to Gerhardt and Gerhardt's numbers to Ingram, you know, it would have been a it would have been a route. And I think if the same thing with McCaffrey and Henry, if you had given McCaffrey's numbers to Henry and like you know McCaffrey would have won in the route. So, uh, and I would the bronze medal for that I would give to Tommy Frazier. Uh, Eddie George won in 95, and uh, I didn't even have Eddie George on my ballot that year. That was a, it, that was a great year for college football wow. performances, and, uh, but I always thought Tommy Frazier should have won a Heisman. You know what's interesting about that McCaffrey piece there is, you know, I was playing that year. That was my senior year, and, you know, folks had asked me, they're like, man, Deshaun got snubbed. You know, how did he not win that? I said, guys, if we're being honest, it's Christian McCaffrey. He he means the most to his team. So as a Clemson player currently defending one of these guys, I knew that. And it was just – I mean, that was baffling, man, honestly, that that he did not win that thing. Well, it was baffling. Well, but the explanation was kind of easy. You know, they played it – it was hard to see Christian McCaffrey. Right, Right. They they played a lot of night games. And and David Shaw, who's, you know, one of the smartest people I've ever interviewed, you know, coach or not coach – pointed out that when you play at, at noon Eastern, you know, the, the TV, the studio shows talk about you all day and, and that, that your performance is imprinted in everybody's brain. You know, when you play at you know, it's, uh, in the night game or even at the, God forbid, at the, in the 1030 Eastern game in the Pac-12, you're not what you did is not watched over and over again in the highlight packages. And and I think I thought that was a very valuable point. And there's really nothing anybody can do about that. But I think it speaks to why the Pac-12 teams have so much trouble winning a Heisman and, you know, their players have trouble winning a Heisman. No doubt. Yeah. Clemson fans always say Deshaun, but McCaffrey, Henry, and then Lamar Jackson. You can't. Lamar Jackson was ridiculous. I say Vince Young, but anyway. Um, okay, last one yeah. here, Ivan, for you. And That's I a good think, one. Yeah, Vince Young. So we'll wrap up with this one, and it kind of speaks to the Heisman as well. Now, it's only – we're recording this on September 22nd, and like you said, it's the first three weeks. We shouldn't really know anything. But speaking of the Heisman, if you had to predict right now, who's going to win it this year? That's the beauty of it. I don't have to predict this year. Yeah, you know, I, I – I, I'm always mystified as to why we feel the necessity and it's only the Heisman, you know, that we have to talk, we have to like do it week after week. We, you know, we don't every, every Sunday, we don't line up. Well, who do you think the national league MVP is now? You know, that's uh, true. Uh, yeah. Uh, 
Uh, and if you look at all the people, all the, the time and energy we put into the preseason picks and all those guys have disappeared. Never worked. Right. You know, right. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's, Spencer Rattler may come back. They could all come back, but you, you can say Brennan Armstrong. It's okay. You can say, <laughs> I agree yeah, with it you. Was, yeah. Brennan Armstrong. I mean, you know, their names that who in the world were, now Matt right. Corral got, Matt Corral. Yeah, Matt Corral Matt. got he got some. He got some love before the season, and yeah. and and in that system, you know, if they, if Ole Miss beats Alabama next week, and that's you know that's not all that far fetched, you know, then it's going to be Matt Corral's to lose. But it's September, you know. I mean, it's like we don't have to do this now, and and <laughs> uh, and there's you know we're you know we got three quarters of the season left. You know, I mean, it's like. Uh, it's like bowl projections and I'm as guilty as everybody. I, you know, I, 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 I go through bowl projections like they're popcorn, you know, but I, it's what a useless exercise, you know, uh, you know, it's just, uh, uh, it's fun. And I guess that's why we do it, you know, cause it's fun, right. but you know, it means nothing. Well, you, you and you and Mark Packer align very yes. closely. He can't yeah. stand it either. He hates the it, old man. guys he on the it. porch. The old guys <laughs> on the porch. That's a uh, harumph. Well, uh, Ivan. That being said, I mean, who's your NFL MVP? Three right. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> Somebody asked me the other day about something about the NFL. Oh, uh, Leslie Visser. I was texting with her. You know, she's used was uh, she's been in media longer. Oh, a legend. Yeah, that's a little, that's she, a name drop right there. I respect uh, it. Well, I'm just to tell you the story. She's she texted me about something. She said, "Who should I play this week as quarterback, Mac or Tua?" <laughs> and I said, "Leslie, I don't even know who they're playing." And just to buttress that point, they were playing each other. Right, it was the first week. So, but I don't pay attention to the NFL. I don't. You know, I'm flying home on Sunday, and the last thing I want to do is watch more football. You know, I got right. work to do. You know, That's and, right. Uh, now, I, you know, I, Sunday night, I'll flip the game on if by the time I've got everything done. And, you know, uh, but I, the only, I really only, honestly, NFL playoffs, I start watching as yeah. a fan. But that's, you know, there's only so much room in my brain, which is, seems to be getting more, you know, shrinking uh, as we speak. You and me both, brother. <laughs> well, <laughs> That's because college football is superior, as we that's all right. think here on this well, podcast. That, yeah, that's that that is uh, absolutely true. Ivan, thank you so much for your time. This was excellent. Um, we really appreciated the stories and and the wisdom, um, and we hope to talk to you soon. Anytime, guys. That was fun. Thanks. Wow, KG. I mean, we we just basically went back in time. We kind of fast forward a little bit on what the future of college football will look like. That was a ton of fun. I mean, big shout out. Thank you, uh, Ivan, for making some time for us and, and really just dropping knowledge bombs all over. The Bobby Bowden stories were just really amazing. And, and I've heard a bunch of those through Coach Mark Rick. So it's it's really you know interesting to hear kind of two vantage points mixed together when I have somebody who coached on his staff and and even a guy that played for him with EJ and then now a media member and, and just, he was a great man. And, and I wish I knew him better. I wish we had more time with him, but love Bobby Bowden. And then the Heisman snubs. I love those. He and I were super aligned with Christian McCaffrey. Yeah. I mean, that 20, uh, 2015 season, Christian, if you're listening, 
That was your trophy, buddy. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, he obviously <laughs> listens. There's no doubt about that. But yeah, he, he agreed. And, you know, Maisel is a, he's interesting because he's from Alabama and he's a Stanford grad. So, you know, he grew up in the South and understood what football means down here. But then he also, you can tell, has a soft spot for West Coast football. And he's right with the McCaffrey snub. Like, we'll look back on that 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now and talk about how if he played for any other team, he probably would have won it because of the time zone differences and the amount of people that didn't watch him. But he was incredible. And, you know, you look at that Heisman class with Christian, with Derrick Henry, with Deshaun. That was a that was a pretty ridiculous Heisman class. But to hear his stories, he was so good. I hope we can have him back again. And I hope you guys enjoyed it. It was just kind of like a, a little bit of a college football history lesson for about 35 minutes. And his stuff that he did with the college football 150 I enjoyed that so much. I thought he did a great job. And I learned. I learned because my knowledge is, you know, from what I remember is pretty slim, but I need to know about the great Princeton teams of the 1890s. And so I appreciate <laughs> College Football 150. I, I, I do too. And, and Kelly, Kelly did a really good job of not throwing it in Ivan's face how old he was with the questions. Kelly, Kelly did a great oh job. Oh my there. gosh. <laughs> I didn't know. Look, it's tough because you want to say, you want to say, wow, you've you have so you've much seen wisdom, all, Ivan. Tell us. When you say that, <laughs> But he has. It's so cool. And I I thought it was really cool that his first kind of full-time gig was covering Clemson's 1981 national title team and how they put him on that beat initially because they thought, oh, Clemson will lose eventually. It's fine. And then they just kept winning. And I just thought that was a cool story. The world is smaller than we know. We're all connected Mm -hmm. in some way. And here it is. Guys, if you enjoy this episode with Ivan, go to on3.com and check out all of his stuff. He is the vice president and senior writer at on3.com. He has a daily column, Kelly, just really diving into so many different things. And it's a great read. So guys, check that out, on3.com, and you can get all you want of our guy, Ivan. But y'all, that was it. Thank you for listening. If you haven't already, Go over to iTunes, follow our podcast, drop us a little five-star rating, or write us a review. We would greatly appreciate it. But until next time, we'll see y'all.